This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by Eddie Bauer. It was a real person, a fishing guide actually. He started experimenting with down jackets back in 1936. There is nothing better than down insulation for, in terms of thermal efficiency. We still haven't found a way to make anything better in the world of apparel. This is Damian Wong, head of design and merchandising at Eddie Bauer. And here's the problem that Damian and his team have been trying to solve. Down may be the best insulator that we have, but it's not perfect. It's clusters of feathers. And if you put feathers inside a normal jacket, they just float around and clump up near the bottom, leaving, say, your shoulders cold. So for the last hundred years, in order to hold the feathers in place, jacket makers have been quilting the jacket, sewing rows of horizontal stitches into the insulation. It's the reason that every down jacket looks basically the same. You are putting what amounts to over 10,000 holes in a jacket that's meant to keep you warm. But now, for the first time, Damien and his team at Eddie Bauer have figured out how to eliminate the quilting problem. It's called thin down. And what it does is suspend the fibers in a kind of three-dimensional structure. Instead of free-floating clusters, the inside of the jacket looks like a sheet of cotton. You essentially get the ability to create a down jacket with no holes in it. And it turns out that 10,000 tiny holes make a huge difference. As they started testing it, the team found that the main problem with the jacket was that it was too warm. And so we started out with uh, thick layers of thin down and ultimately went um, thinner and thinner and thinner to get to a comfortable layering weight. The result is the Evertherm down jacket. It packs down tiny, weighs nearly nothing, and looks like no other down jacket on the market. People expect to see a down jacket that is puffy and quilted. So we're still undergoing that process of trying to tell consumers what this is made of and what it can do, uh, because it does break the paradigm they've, they've seen for a very long time. Go to eddiebauer.com slash evertherm to learn more. That's eddiebauer.com slash evertherm. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the science of survival. There's a saying that the Navy SEALs use. Water makes cowards of us all because in the pool is where they see panic set in the fastest. And then the famous football coach, Vince Lombardi, put it slightly differently. He said, fatigue makes cowards of us all, because even the best players start to crumble when they're low on air. And I know it's not quite the same, but I think bees fit in that same category. Bees make cowards of us all. There's just no shame in completely losing it if a bee is buzzing around. The difference is that Navy SEALs trained to remain calm underwater, and Vince Lombardi was motivating his team to run until they didn't get tired anymore. And when we see these guys in action, we think, wow, what incredible athletes. But if we see someone keeping perfectly calm with a bee flying around, we think, what are they, a psychopath? Do they not feel human feelings? And then we think, you either kill that bee or leave it alone. Don't piss it off and let it come over here. And then we think, whoa, get it away. Get it away. Where is it? Where is it? Kill it. No, don't kill it. No, kill it. No, don't kill it. Okay, it's going away. Now, I realize that without bees pollinating everything, our entire food production system, and probably our entire civilization, would come crashing down. But bees are also responsible for more deaths each year than any other animal. And that feels like the more relevant information when they start doing flybys. And because almost all of us have that same healthy fear, 
Bee stories almost never start with someone heading out to mess with a hive and see what happens. We're doing something else, and we stumble across the bees. And what ensues is basically a terrible misunderstanding, both between you and the bees, and between your body and the venom. No one starts their morning thinking, today's the day that I'm going to die at the hands of a honeybee. You wake up slowly, enjoying the songbirds near your window. How many months has it been since you've heard this? Spring was late this year, and you feel like it's been a lifetime since you felt the sun, since you've played outside. Today is not a work day, you decide. It's Thursday, basically the weekend. And weekends are for climbing. You email work that you're sick, and then text a few friends to see if anyone else can escape for the day. But one after the other, they have excuses. Okay, you'll go alone. The decision made, you move quickly. Toast, shoes, chalk bag, headphones. There are a few boulders by the river outside of town. Nothing very high. Nothing that needs a belay. Your crash pad will be your buddy today. You're halfway out of town when your music abruptly cuts off. You forgot to charge your phone last night. You fiddle with the radio, annoyed that you'll have to climb without music. As you pull up to the trailhead, the riverbank looks lush and alive. There are no cars here, and rummaging around your glove box, you find your old MP3 player. You can't remember the last time you used it, but it has power. You're in luck. Sort of. My toast on one side. You grab your gear and pull the thick, soft crash pad onto your back and set off, singing along with your favorite hits of the last few decades. The trail hugs the plodding river, now and then cutting a path through the patches of clover and wildflowers. You're still a few miles from the boulders when you feel a sharp prick on your calf, as if someone's holding the tip of an iron to your skin. You jolt backward as the small black and orange honeybee zips around your head, buzzing your eyes and ears. Then it falls to the ground, twitching. A bee's stinger does not pierce like a sword, but burrows like a mole. And it has evolved specifically for large, thick-skinned honey lovers like bears and badgers and you. Attached to the hollow poison shaft are two long barbed lancets that take turns digging into your thick mammal skin, each sliding along the other to hook a little deeper into your flesh. In this back and forth fashion, the stinger pulls further into you until, like an anchor trapped beneath a rock, it refuses to budge. The bee then rips itself apart from the stinger. 
She only has a few moments before the trauma of the amputation kills her, and she uses them to distract you, buzzing your face and pretending that she is still a threat. Left in place, the venom will continue pouring into your body for minutes after the bee has fallen away. You pull your calf towards you and inspect the tiny barb in your skin. You're startled to see it pulsing like a tiny heart, and in a queasy panic, you pinch it and try and pull it out, feeling a small tug of skin as you do. Bee venom, called apotoxin, is chemically similar to a rattlesnake's. It rapidly disperses in your tissue, and the pain you feel spreading from the sting is the result of a protein called melatonin that causes your cell membranes to burst open. Histamine in the venom, along with your body's natural histamine defense, make your blood vessels permeable, causing your capillaries to leak and inflame. The histamine also triggers special nerve fibers in your skin that tell the brain it needs to scratch the sting site, perhaps as an evolutionary defense against burrowing parasites. But unless you're stung repeatedly many hundred times, bee venom won't kill you. Most people that do die from bee stings are allergic to an enzyme in the venom called phospholipase. When it's detected, the immune system goes berserk. It's the equivalent of pulling the fire alarm in a skyscraper because someone lit a candle. Your throat swells and you suffocate. But you're not allergic. You're just annoyed that you have to climb with a painful welt. You look down and notice the bee that stung you has gone still. Time to get moving. You put your headphones back in and start hiking, taking a little extra care around the wildflowers. The boulders you've been heading towards rise up at the river's edge, three of them wedged together, just how you remembered the spot. You put down your pad and start warming up with some stretches. The panic of the sting now just a dull ache in your calf. Your favorite route climbs up a deep crack. The final move is a blind grab over a small ledge just beneath a hollow tree. From there, you can sit atop the rock and soak in the spring sun. You may even jump off into the river. It's not a hard route, but a perfect warm-up to start your session. And as you begin, you're surprised at how well your body remembers the moves. You feel graceful and alert, moving in time to your music. What you don't hear is the steady, distant hum, like a lawnmower, three houses down. You make your way up the crack, then coil your body, mentally imagining the shape of that final hole just out of sight. With a grunt, you lunge upward. But instead of the hold you're expecting, 
you glimpse a neat row of honeycomb inside the hollow tree, covered by what must be hundreds of thousands of bees. Then your hand erupts in pain. And for a brief moment, time stops, and you're in flight, watching a storm of insects pour out of their hive. Then the ground expels the air from your lungs. You lay on your pad for a minute, but the stingers embedded in your hand are already releasing a pheromone that is sending the disturbed hive into a frenzy. Thousands of bees empty out of it, guided by the pheromone to the large mammal attacking their nest. They fall on you like hail, using their bodies as bullets, headbutting you and bouncing off. Many more begin to land, and you feel the first stings on your arms and head. You frantically swat at them as you struggle to pick yourself up. This only makes it worse. Had this been a normal hive, perhaps 10% of the bees would have come for you. But these are Africanized bees, an aggressive, violent hybrid species originally from sub-Saharan Africa. They were first brought to Brazil in the 1950s in the hope to breed a bee that would be better suited than European bees to tropical climates. But before their aggression could be tamed, 26 queens escaped their quarantine and began crossbreeding with local bee populations. For the last 50 years, they have been spreading north displacing more docile populations and traveling between one and 200 miles a year. In 1990, they crossed the U.S. border and began colonizing the Southwest. Their hives can number nearly 100,000 bees, and they will send every last stinging female out to attack. You feel stabs of pain everywhere your skin is exposed, but it's in your neck and face they target most. Your blood is near the surface here, and their venom will spread the furthest and do the most damage. One of them stings inside your nose, and starry tears explode into your eyes. You should have bolted for your car the moment you hit the ground. You could have kept the swarm at bay until you reached the safety of closed, sealed doors. But your panic overwhelms your ability to think clearly, and the closest safety you can think of is the river. You run to it like a man on fire. The water is deep and slow here, and you'd feel for anything to grab onto at its bottom. Dozens of drowning bees begin floating around you as you find a rock and cling to it. You're grateful you escaped before the entire swarm reached you. How many times have you been stung? 30? Maybe 50 times? Not enough to kill you, 
but your hands and face are throbbing in pain. You feel a little disoriented and dizzy, a sure sign that there's more than a trace amount of venom in your system, expanding your veins and dropping your blood pressure. You try to focus on holding your breath. Just hold tight, you think. They'll forget about you in a few seconds. But they won't. The European honeybee used by beekeepers has been selectively bred over a thousand years to be docile and tolerant of humans. But for the African bee, survival depends on striking at the slightest provocation and striking hard. In the United States, they have earned the name Killer Bees. In 2013, a 62-year-old man in Texas died when his tractor disturbed a hive in an old pile of wood. He was stung over a thousand times. In 2014, a hive in the attic of a house in Arizona attacked two men who were mowing their elderly neighbor's lawn, killing one and critically injuring the other. In 2016, a 23-year-old hiker, also in Arizona, died when a swarm descended on him, apparently without provocation. You know none of this, only that it's been over a minute since you submerged, and your body is screaming for air. The bees must have forgotten you by now. You squint through the murky water above you, and with a sinking despair, realize the foolishness of entering the river. As it turns out, the swarm is not so easily fooled. Africanized bees have been known to stay on the hunt for as long as 10 hours, and you can see thousands of small black dots zipping across the surface, almost as if they know you must eventually come up for air. But you have no choice. <gasps> they sting your eyes, your scalp, your lips. Before you can submerge again, a handful dive into your mouth, and sharp stabs of pain blossom onto your tongue and throat. You don't dare open your mouth and lose your air, so you begin to chew feeling the trapped bees pop between your teeth. As you frantically grab for the bottom, there's nothing else to do but swallow. The whole ordeal only took a few seconds, but already your lungs begin to throb, and you realize you'll only have moments before you'll have to go to the surface again. The average human can withstand 10 stings for every pound of body weight before the accumulation of venom becomes fatal. You are young and athletic and could survive perhaps 1,500 stings, maybe a few hundred more than that. You're more worried about how many times you could come up for air before you're rendered unconscious. Bee venom also contains a neurotoxin called apamin that crosses the blood-brain barrier and attacks the neurons responsible for coordination and muscle function. 
Up and down are becoming difficult to tell apart, and your rock is increasingly hard to hold on to. You try to shake away the vertigo and ignore the pain in your mouth and choking of your lungs. You try to brush away the voice in your head that's telling you that if you stay in the river, you will die. You know you've squandered your one chance of outrunning the swarm. You wonder if you could make it to nightfall, if they will leave when the sun sets. If only the river were moving faster, you think, you could let it wash you downstream. This is when you remember that there's an outhouse a little further down the trail at a beachhead where you sometimes eat lunch. The river takes a sharp turn right at that spot. You're sure if you swim, you can hit it. You force yourself not to think about what will happen once you emerge from the water. You're out of time. Your body won't let you stay under any longer, so you gather your courage and kick off. The venom has left you feeling fatigued and weak, and it's difficult to swim. All you know is to go with the current, to keep your head down as much as you can. You try desperately to stay underwater, but the bees, following above you like a storm, lash out every time you reach up for air. You don't know how long you swim like this, splashing wildly as the bees attack your back and head. You begin to wonder if the shore is further away than you thought. But then you're on the sand. You stand and try to run. The outhouse is less than a hundred feet away, but you've barely made it ten steps before the swarm covers you in a blanket of thorns. As you stagger drunkenly ahead, hundreds of them land on your neck and face, force themselves into your mouth and nose, and sting your eyelids. You can no longer feel individual stings. It feels as if the nerves of your skin have all been stripped bare. Somehow, you reach the outhouse and stumble in. You slam yourself against the door, the walls, hoping to crush any bee that hasn't yet found a place to sting. It does little good, and hundreds of them have made it into the outhouse with you. You try to swat them, but your arms seem limp and dead, your muscles frozen. You feel your consciousness begin to slip away and fall to the ground. As the venom pours into you, cells burst all through your body. Your blood pressure plummets. Your hands and feet swell to twice their size. 
You begin to vomit uncontrollably and you feel your bowels loosen and eject a stream of diarrhea. The world spins. And for a brief moment, you feel like you are one of the bees. You careen around the outhouse, feeling the liquid resistance of air against your wings, before diving down to place your stinger in the now still creature on the floor. You plunge your stinger into the body, ripping it away from your belly, and then fall to the floor among the hundreds of dead bees. The world goes mercifully black. Hours later, you wake in a hospital bed, unable to open your swollen eyes. A deep ache radiates from your joints and a burning itch covers your body. You are alive, and the doctor tells you to thank the hikers who by sheer luck had been picnicking at the beach where you tried to escape. You didn't notice them. They knew enough not to try to grab you. But they had cell phones, and help came quickly. In the ambulance, you were shot with steroids and antihistamines, an IV to restore your fluids, and potassium to keep your heart from going into fatal arrhythmia. Your blood pressure stabilized, and the swelling reduced. You were stung over a thousand times, they tell you. Had you been any younger, or any older, or any weaker, you would have certainly died in that outhouse. But the bees are still not done with you. The sheer amount of necrotic cells that have worked their way into your bloodstream have clogged your body's filtration system, and without intervention, your kidneys will fail, your blood pressure will skyrocket, and you will die of acute renal failure. A dialysis machine pulls your toxic blood out of you and puts clean blood back in. That night, you dream of falling endlessly with an ever-expanding cloud of ink spreading above you. You land in a river of insects and wake up spitting and coughing. The next morning, you use the toilet and find dead bees floating there. Your joints ache for days, but eventually the pain subsides and you heal. It's months before you can tell your story without panic welling in your throat. But now, you can even joke about the bees in the toilet. A year passes. It's spring again, and you're walking your new dog down the street when a sudden pain erupts on your arm. You know before you look that a small stinger is burrowing into your flesh. Shit. Very suddenly, you're awash in a sense of doom, and it's only seconds before your skin blossoms into hives. The taste of metal floods your mouth, and then your tongue begins to swell. You drop to the ground, 
desperately sucking in air through what feels like an ever-shrinking straw. Your worried dog licks your face and runs circles around you. You are not allergic before, but the swarm's attack caused your immune system to label bee venom as a full-body threat, and it has pulled the fire alarm. You are going into anaphylactic shock. Instead of releasing just at the sting site, histamines flood your entire body. Your blood pressure plummets as your blood vessels rapidly expand, and your heart rate skyrockets as it desperately tries to compensate. Dizziness and nausea consume you. The smooth muscles in your lungs constrict, choking you from the inside. The same constriction in your intestines cause your bowels to fail. The swelling in your tongue spreads to your lips and throat. Your breath is reduced to a painful wheeze. The only thing that will save you is an immediate injection of epinephrine. More commonly called adrenaline, epinephrine slams your body into its fight-or-flight response, constricting your vessels, raising your blood pressure, and blocking histamines. People who know they're allergic carry auto-injectors called EpiPens with them at all times. The doctors made you purchase two of them before you even left the hospital. One is in your first aid kit at home. The other is in your glove box, 10 blocks away. Your eyes swell shut. Your throat seals tight. You survived a thousand stings. You die from one. Robbie Carver. He wrote, produced, sound designed, and jumped into a real, actual river for this story. It's like instant migraine. Like the second I go into the water, it's just throbbing pain in the forehead. It was produced and edited by me, Peter Frickwright. It was narrated by Crystal Ligori. Find her at crystalligori.com. This piece was brought to you by Eddie Bauer, makers of the new Evertherm jacket a new evolution in down. Thanks to Andrea Mustaine and Ellie Hurdy for saving us from many errors about bees and how sting victims are treated in the hospital. And shout out to listener Matt Hickman, who came across us recording the sounds of running into the river and was like, what are you guys doing? And then we told him and he was like, oh, I listened to your podcast. And my son and I once got chased into a river by bees. It was good to meet you, Matt. This season of The Science of Survival is supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, economic performance, and bee venom. More at sloan.org. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX.